Welcome to the Seeing Ourselves podcast. My name's Sharon Walters and we're recording here at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Today I'm joined by two very special guests, Jacob V. Joyce and Rudy Lowe. Welcome. Hi. Lovely to see you. Yeah, lovely Thanks to for see coming you. in. Um, what I thought we'd do is just start by a very short introduction um, of who you are. So Rudy, would you like to start? I'm Rudy Lowe. My pronouns are they, them. I am a visual artist. Um, I'm currently doing a practice-based PhD as well um, at the University of Arts London. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Jacob B. Joyce. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. And I am, similar to Rudy, also a visual artist. Um, and my work is concerned with reanimating histories of anti-colonial and queer liberation and kind of nourishing new narratives that also are queer and anti-colonial and more importantly, anti-alienation. Um, yes, and I'm also doing a PhD, um, which is at Westminster. Wonderful. So we have been in discussion for a few months now, haven't we? Trying to decide what we would like to speak about today. And we've come up with something, haven't we? Yeah, yeah I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, so we have decided not to open um, the folder which encases this piece until we started recording so that we could get some um, immediate responses. So, Rudy, would you like to open the piece and then describe what we see, what we're seeing, and... Um... Okay. Wow. So, we Ooh. have a print. Yeah. Uh, of a person yeah. in a blue jacket with a white ruffled collar and they have white hair. There is a, some kind of uh, music sheet in the background with a string instrument and um, they're holding some kind of sword. And it says Monsieur de Saint George from an original picture at MH Angelo's Academy. And he's almost got, he's got brown skin, but so fair that he could almost pass as white. Mm. Um, his eyes are kind of gray with like a, almost a hint of blue. Um, his, yeah. So this is, this is Joseph Bolognier. Um, the reason why I was drawn to this object is because in an event that was put on at the Maritime Museum by Shardine Taylor Stone, um, which was inviting different people with a queer practice to look at objects in the collection and kind of queer them, whatever that meant to them. Mm. I came across this print um, of uh, Joseph Bolognier, who is this important person in black history because he um, was, he's noted as being the first classical composer of African descent. And he was a, a fencing champion. And the way that he was framed was he was the son of this important person within the plantocracy. I don't know the mm. plant, you know, it was plant. a plant. His father was a planter. Right. And his mother was just reduced to property of his father in the description. Mm. And that really upset me and it irritated me. And I, and I did a bit of research and found out that she was from Senegal and that she was abducted from Senegal and she became pregnant with Joseph when she was 16. And the more I kind of thought about the fact that, you know, we are being presented with this fair-skinned person of color who's really important because they were able to do 
things that are considered important within the canon of, of Western mm. Western culture. You know, he made classical music. He was a fencer, but even now, um, or even then, because the museum have now changed the description, um, his mother is just reduced to an object, mm. um, and it upset me. Um, so I wanted to kind of imagine what Andy Nanon's life would be like. Mm. What would her life be like if she had joy? If she had you know, if she if she was not considered as an object. Um, and so I wrote a poem about, kind of inspired by what we don't know. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, and, and I presented that accompanied by his music um, at the event. So this is kind of like riffing off that. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Thinking about why this object is queer, um, for me, I think that race and gender and sexuality you can never really consider them as separate from each other mm -hmm. um, and they're all interconnected and so for me writing a poem about um, a black woman who was denied kind of agency and humanity um, it is a form of queering because it's um, it's challenging a, a colonial paradigm that always like robs people of color, specifically black people, of the multitudes that we exist in yeah. and kind of flattens people into yeah. one-dimensional objects or characters. Um, I'm just looking at the actual description from this piece and it reads, born in Guadeloupe, he was the son of Anne Diet Nanon, an enslaved woman from Senegal, and George Bolognier, um, a wealthy planter, has that changed that description from They've changed when... it now, okay, yeah. So wonderful. after I raised that concern, they, they did change the wording of it. Yeah. I think it's really important that we um, are able to get access to these kinds of things so that the wording can be changed and people can be given the credit and the... Um, well, given the credit that they deserve because mm -hmm. being flattened in that way to just an enslaved person or quite often it will just say slave... Um, it affects the way you see yourself and that's why I wanted to use the archives and use collections to kind of go in and and have these very vital discussions. Yeah, I feel for me as well it's like there's in some of these um, objects there's a inherent violence but then there's a secondary which happens with the cataloguing of objects mm. and so you know cataloguing is done by individual people um, and so yeah, being able to kind of, I think, create, being able to sort of describe what's happening in the original object, which might be violent, without then recreating that violence in the way that it's described, you know, so being able to kind of, um, yeah, contextualize the original violence and at the same time not continue that kind of dehumanizing of the subjects is really important. Mm -hmm. And what do you think are the best ways of doing that going forward? Because for me, I, I often think about the importance of having people of power um, that are in those kinds of positions that are, are from our backgrounds, basically. I think that's really important in changing things going forward. But what ways do you think things can, can change? Yeah, I think it's about having the language to be able to articulate, you know, uh, the context 
in a way that isn't dehumanizing. And I think that, um, you know, my experience of going into archives is that sometimes people working within these spaces are scared to do that work because mm. they're scared to say the wrong thing. And so actually what happens is that um, you find materials that are not catalogued mm -hmm. and are just kind of sitting there, um, not able to be accessed because there is this fear of how to mm. describe them, um, which, you know, that, that's not the solution either. But yeah, I think it's really important to have people in these kind of spaces who understand the works in a different way, mm. you know. Um, Unfortunately, there's a really low num number of black people um, working in archives, which is partly because of the training in some way being inaccessible. Yeah. So, you know, uh, removing the funding for people to do training and things like this just, you know, is going to really limit then who decides to take that on. Um, so it's really important that, yeah, there's different kinds of people to do that work. And I know that with some collections, um, for example, I know with the Huntley archives, I know that a part of the work of uh, that going to London Metropolitan Archives was that there was a uh, prerequisite that some of the volunteers who were doing the cataloguing were also from the community. Fantastic, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the Huntley archives just for people who might be listening that don't understand? Yeah, so the Huntley archives um, are the archives of Jessica and Eric Huntley, who were and are um, Guyanese activists who were very active um, both in the Caribbean and also here. Um, they started the Bogolovature bookshop and uh, publishing house. They were involved in supplementary schools. and I attended of, that supplementary yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, inter you know, international uh, activist movements, and, mm. you know, have done this incredible work. And uh, Jessica Huntley documenting all of this materials from all, all the kind of things that they were involved in. And um, then I think it was in 2006, this was deposited to, into London Metropolitan Archives. And recently, just following on from that, I actually attended um, Eric and Jessica's um, supplementary school as a child, <laughs> which feels like an, an, such an honour now. At the time I was like, oh my gosh, Saturday, school on Saturday. <laughs> but now I can see the benefits of attending that school. Um, and recently the National Portrait Gallery asked me to create a piece. They um, commissioned a work that I created based on past images of them. Um, and so I created a, a collage work that has now been acquired by the National Portrait Gallery, which I'm really proud to say in June 2023 will go to the museum when they reopen. And um, it will go on display, I believe, the following year, which is um, a huge, huge honour and privilege. Yeah, it's incredible. But yeah. I think that both the supplementary school movement and the kind of um, solution that, that that Rudy suggested in terms of like how do we how do we rectify or kind of like create an antidote for the violence of how objects are often framed. It brings up an interesting point again, which is that both introducing black and brown people into the archive and trying to supplement the British school system, mm. although amazing things can happen in those instances. Like my opinion is that you cannot actually fix a problem from a marginal position outside of it you know and especially you have to be part of i would even say being part of it's not enough i'd say okay. that the thing itself needs to be changed yeah. drastically from it's it 
and I would even say maybe destroyed mm. and reimagined. Like, yeah. what, what could an archive be? This is what, really interesting. Sorry to interrupt because I've been having similar conversations around this, this idea of having a seat at the table mm -hmm. and what that actually means and what the limitations are of that or the idea of building your own table. So, yeah, sorry. It's, um, no, it's a conversation that I think we're all having and I yeah. think there's a lot of like talk around abolitionist kind of ideologies at the moment has come back into, into our collective imaginations um, or it's become like popular um, again. But, you know, I think that for me, the archive that we're sitting in right now has never been built. It wasn't built to contain the humanity of black people. It wasn't built to um, allow working class people, people of color, queer people to feel um, that their history is alive yeah. and, and that it's something that they can access. The, the, those were not its original goals. No. So to try and add those, to supplement that problem, uh, you know, for example, the black supplementary school movement, yeah. incredible for the children that went there. Yeah. But all of the problems that it was trying to address are still here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so it's, I'm not saying that the, we don't, we shouldn't do these things. Yeah. But I'm saying that they don't solve the problem. They yeah, can only... I, I agree, but to a certain extent, because I think that through, although it didn't solve the problem, I think the impact on some of the people like myself who attended and the changes that I feel I've been able to kind of start to instigate, I'm not saying I've solved all these problems, but I mean the kinds of things that you're able to instigate or the confidence that you get can get from attending those schools and being able to see yourself reflected back in the learning or you know some of the people that you're taught about can have a it doesn't change everything but I feel as though it can have some impact well I mean this brings us back to this object to yeah. jo Joseph Bologna I mean look at him the, so the poem that I wrote about was trying to like yes it's important that we have people like Joseph Bologna but yeah. like, what about everyone else what about yeah. everyone who's not really talented um, who's not a classical composer, who didn't get the special education, the special treatment. Um, we're meant, I feel like sometimes we can focus too much on the success stories as a way to kind of distract from the fact that 99.9% .9 of people don't have that. And, and you know, um, so that's, I don't know if it's appropriate to read the, po the poem. I think it is, yeah. The poem. Yeah, please do. I'll just read a section from it. Um, so again, this was inspired by Andy Nanon, the mother of Joseph Bologna, who was abducted from Senegal and became pregnant with Joseph at the age of 16. And in the wake of hell, in the gasps of air that swell me to humanity, I knew love for myself, for myself despite him, love for myself beyond and before this moment. In youth, in sweet ecstasy of sisterhood, I will sway again. When he is turned to stone and sunk in iron, when his pride is shameful secrets, and his bloated power begins to tear, weeping from its blistered seams, I will sway again and catch my sister's furtive gaze, her smile. When this frame imprisons him, I will be away unmoored from labors of black excellence and mulatto marvels. I will be away in the last place they'd look. Even now, look closely at this ball, this artless posturing pageantry, this den of festering hams and wigs with mosquito bite topography. Watch them fan themselves oblivious, sweating aimless bodies. I can't even despise such whatless creatures. Most of them are working to pay their debts. The peasant becomes a twisted copy of his master when given a whip and a little money to use it. But I am no peasant, and the only master I have is God. 
and God is love, patience and vengeance. Yes, my God is vengeance and she was with me before I crossed the sea. Her shackled hands held my head in the darkness of the hull. Her wry smile found mine in deep fields. Wet brown earth pulled me down and carried me home for a moment, teleported me back in time to the warmth of her skin, the weight of her head in my hands, a boat made from our embrace. Our kiss became the first cross on a map to freedom. She named me with the hope of escape, a birthing ceremony. And tonight, my God, my God, with a voice that rises like thunder, she has spoken to all our lovers on the island, our kindred forest, our beloved. The bashful and the timid hearts have carried many barrels. Proud and tactful, callous hands have hid them in plain sight. Our weavers and our children have decorated them with cloth and lace. Together we have placed them on all the points God has kissed me, on every route towards escape, on every flinching muscle. As my knees begin to quiver, she is so close to touching my soul, to birthing me again in floods of laughter, in spasms of pleasure, in, in, in flames. Yes, I see it now, in flames that dance just like us. My son will run his fingers through the air and sweet music will carry me home, laughing and soaked, wet with tears of joy. My jaw will ache from laughing. Yes, I feel it now. What a legacy, what sweet, sweet vengeance as the crackling ashen structure crumbles to the ground as its faculties begin to atrophy. I will smile at my sister, my God, my lover and take her hands in mine. Stars reflected on the black water, no horizon, just waves of time collapsing as we fly. My God, my sister, my love, myself. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry I messed so it up a bit. No, you didn't. Mm. It was so beautiful mm. and so powerful mm. as well. Well, I just thought like, so what, what I was going to say is in terms of like, how can we rectify this problem of how things are archived? I would say that poetry is a way to do it. And, I, and when I say poetry, I don't mean just poetry. I mean, I guess, as, as Audre Lorde would say, the erotic, um, the, the power of sensuality, of touch, of play, of fulfillment, satisfaction, together, like feeling that we are together in something. Um, I like the I like the repetition of this. Did you say sisterhood? You were saying mm -hmm. sisterhood. That really struck me. That kind of pulling return that return to sisterhood and of love and of self love was so. Uh, I'm really moved by that piece. Thank you so much for sharing it. It was funny because before you even said about vengeance, I was like, this feels like a curse. It feels like she is cursing them. And then you spoke about vengeance. I was like, yeah, I can really, I can really feel it. And then I was thinking about how, yeah, there was something very sensual in that. And I was thinking about how is this poem sensual in ways that this object from the archive isn't? And like, how has that captured more of a person than this has and mm. that actually it's interesting because i think that this print there's a coldness there isn't there yeah. a definite coldness and there's a lack of um there's a lack of it feels lifeless mm. to us. like you know i think in terms of the tone of the skin and the mm. background and and you brought so much life and and warmth and sensuality and and beauty, but a kind of combination of grace mixed with vengeance. 
because I think I, you know, I say this to young people when I work with, with schools and with youth centers and just young people in general, your anger is valid, your frustration is valid and your boredom is also valid. Like those are all really good emotions to have because it will fuel you to get to somewhere else yeah. where you don't feel those anymore. And when I looked at this piece and I read the description, I felt angry and I felt, wow, his mother was 16. She was captured in Senegal. She was raped essentially by yeah. this slave, by her slave master. Um, and, you know, and we we're meant to kind of celebrate what a brilliant union this was to create such an incredible person, you know, and it's, it, it made me feel sick. And I thought, well, what about her joy? What about her love? What about her, you know, friendship and desires and vengeance, you know, vengeance started bubbling up and like, I want vengeance. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's what. You know what though? I think also you've really just touched on something that um, in terms of people, uh, in terms of systems of whiteness feeling uncomfortable with the history of the transatlantic slave trade, this being an outcome of that feels comfortable to people that it's like, oh, well, at least there are these little pockets yeah. of stories of like someone who, you know, this sort of black exceptionalism. Um, and actually it's like, no, there's something deeply uncomfortable in this, that actually this is the product of some of the most violent and heinous um, mm. aspects of that history, actually. Exactly. So, yeah, there's something about these particular stories being platformed um, as, yeah, as something that feels kind of comfortable, but actually I think is just, yeah, deeply uncomfortable. It's a redemption narrative. That's what he is. He's, he's like, he's the redeeming story of, of slavery. It's like, but look, we were able to produce some really great people you know, the one, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know much about slavery in Guadeloupe because it's not a, an island that, it's not a place that I've, um, I've spent a particular amount of time researching, but it's interesting that he's the person who is, who there's a film being made about this year mm. and not any of the people who I'm sure would have led rebellions and yeah. re re revolts, you know. It's a really interesting point. And how do you feel about the description mentioning his father as a planter? I just think, and this is the, this, I don't, I hope this doesn't sound like crass or something, but I don't care. And I don't mm. care about descriptions in museums. Mm. I think that if we try to find our humanity in the descriptions in museums, we've already lost. Mm -hmm. And I think that Carnival, having just come from a two month residency in Trinidad and Tobago with Cambulay, which is the mm -hmm. historical reenactment of the Cambulay riots, where the people of Trinidad and Tobago beat down the police and said, no, you're not taking away our carnival. You're not taking away our cultural traditions. You're not taking away our humanity. Yeah. And they won and they beat the police. Yeah. Um, and they do a historical reenactment of that every year. Um, having just come from that and seeing thousands of people out in the street mm -hmm. becoming a living archive, I'm not interested Phenomenal. in a museum description. I think yeah. that it's the, the last place I would want to look for the humanity of African and Caribbean people. It's not that I would look for humanity there, but I think, I mean, I... I completely agree. These are colonial institutions that can't be reformed. Um, they were, you know, they've come out of this colonial period and, and the entire structure is colonial. And so um, I don't think that that can be created into something else. I'm, I'm with you on their, them being abolished and something completely else coming in. 
Um, but I do think that there is an importance in the way that things are described because it's an entry point for people who don't already have that knowledge. So for someone who is unaware of these histories, the way that things are described, the language that is used is going to signpost that person to something else. So it's more about, you know, how can the language actually gaslight someone from not understanding the severity of violence in that history? And so, you know, if you have that word, a wealthy planter, that is going to sit with someone very differently than if you say like slave master, you mm -hmm. know. And so understanding that those terms carry different weights of violence and how mm -hmm. that kind of um, that first experience of them. And so once you already have that lexicon and that knowledge, then I think it's easier to be in the position of like, these are not important to me. Yeah. Um, but I think children coming here on school visits, um, young researchers, people who maybe haven't built up that uh, lexicon or experience, these are really important. They contextualize the broader history. Um, and I think that what I was saying about that kind of uncomfortability, there's a shying away from the violent language, um, but actually, I think that those words are really important to to embed the the original violence into what is being described. Yeah, I think the tension between our two approaches is really vital, and I think that it's you know it's like I like always like to think of the hydra of white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchal ableism, like this beast with many heads. But in, in, in reflection of that, we are also a hydra. We also have millions of heads and we can all approach it differently. While one person might be like, I don't even want to engage with this because it makes me so angry. Mm -hmm. Another person might be like, I want to sit and I want to find the right language to frame this perfectly so that people understand it in, you know, who will use this, this, um, this institutional framework they also should should understand the violence of this, you know? It, ha it has to be both, you know, it has to be both approaches. So I think the supplementary school movement is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think I wish that they'd been given more resources and more Definitely. support. But I do also think that why I wouldn't want to start a supplementary school or why I don't think that it solves the problem is because the word supplement, mm. if someone's diet is trash, mm. no, matter, no matter how much you supplement it, you can't make it healthy. And I think that's the same way I think about institutional problems with schooling in this country and with museums, is that the main diet is not healthy. Mm. Um, I agree. And I think, I think the people that set up the school and the people who are pro the school would feel exactly the same way. But I think as the book by, I believe it was by Margaret Andrews, um, stated doing nothing is not an option. Mm -hmm. And that's what they felt. It was that doing nothing as in, as in, <laughs> I think very similar to how we are today and why we're sitting here is because doing nothing is an option. I think these conversations are so important and um, their activism and the activism that you both continue to do today in your own, you know, in, in different ways, but obviously you're, you're both, you both know this system exists and you both understand that these systems are here to suppress us, but there are, we're all fighting for ways to to do something, to instigate some change, to try and help the next generation and our own generation. 
Yeah, definitely. In all of our very diverse and different ways. And that's, yeah. that's what's so lovely is to see the, 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 the multitudes in which we approach these things. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what's beautiful. And I, I've, I'm particularly enjoying this conversation because of the because of the nuances, because so often we don't get to sit in spaces and have space and time to have these conversations. Definitely. And I think even, you know, what what can happen is that the gaslighting that you mentioned, uh, Rudy, that, that sometimes you, it kind of creates a, you know, it's like, why do people not come to spaces? Why, why do people not go to archives? Mm. I think a lot of people feel like, well, this is not a space for me. Yeah. And yet, actually, there is a lot of stuff here that could be really interesting for so many people. But um, so I do think it is worth kind of as you say, kind of walking into space and being like, I belong here too. Yeah. Kind of owning the space in, in that way. Um, I would say there's a, there's a, there's a power in being an imposter and being like, I'm actually working on my own space. Like, yeah. you can keep this space. Yeah. We're going to build our own space. Yeah. But I do think that there is, again, the tension between both approaches being like, no, actually, this is my space too. We have, we have to have both. Because I think if, for me, I feel like there's power in both. So, coming into these spaces, but also setting up our own spaces too. Because if I sit outside of these spaces, we wouldn't be here today and we wouldn't get access to what is rightfully, there there are stories. Um, Yes, they're being told by other people and quite often, for example, the captions are um, being written by other people. But I also feel that the idea that these images so often are not created by ourselves. So yes, we're seeing ourselves reflected back but who's actually um the artist in this work is you know nine times out I think I'd probably say 100% of the time is not ourselves creating images of ourselves so I think it's really important that we come back in and we have these conversations we definitely dissect and discuss that's really interesting because I think uh if I didn't know the context of this image I wouldn't know that he's black do you know what I mean I wouldn't that's not what I see here. And I feel like, yeah, in terms of who is representing us and how, I feel like um, the person who's created this, that's not something that they were trying to make apparent, probably because they were trying to paint or depict him in a in a positive light. So there's that sort of like removal of blackness. Um, and yeah, I think of myself in these sort of spaces as, an archival interloper in some way that I... Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to use that, sorry. (laughs) Don't come for me when you hear me using it. (laughs) I feel like I'm I'm so used to being in those kind of spaces as someone who hasn't had formal archival training, but I have been in enough of those spaces that I feel like I understand how they they operate and how I can... um, how I can traverse those spaces mm. in the ways that I need them to function for me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being like, right, I've learned the codes of this space. I understand what are the psychological, uh, physical, spiritual, emotional barriers in this space mm-hmm. that I might need to kind of ward myself off from. And I am going to come in, uh, if I have to, doing my Jedi mind tricks yes. to make sure that I can get what I need 
from this space. And I think that um, that's also something that gets built up over time of being in these kind of spaces. And in order to get to that point, you go through so many kind of microaggressions and very overt aggressions. Yes. That might put you off. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Might because that's, been my, yeah, that's yeah. been my experience too. And it's almost like, God, I can't believe I have to experience this at this point. And there are so many barriers to almost making you feel welcome in these spaces, mm. you know. There's so many, we won't go into all of them, but there are so many ways that you can be pushed away from being part of these spaces. You know, like you said, you know, don't have archival training. My degree isn't a history-based degree. But I, I truly feel that you don't need that. These spaces belong to us too. Mm. And I would also say that, you know, talking about painting as a kind of colonial practice, as me and Rudy both have, painting as, as a big part of both of our art practices. Mm -hmm. I feel that, for, first of all, yeah, we need to understand that painting is, is, is also, a, just like archiving, is also a, a practice that has been used to alienate black and brown people, people to create a really like warped narrative of ourselves. And I feel like we're both kind of, um, all of all three of us actually, I feel like are kind of addressing that in our practices. Um, and creating new frames to consider things. But Rudy has an exhibition on at the moment. Um, and um, I went to the first part of the exhibition because it's an exhibition in two parts. Um, and I didn't know it was in two parts. Yeah. So it's Ooh. called Unattributable. Unattributable Briefs, mm -hmm. Act One, which was in Peckham. Yeah. Um, because so the, the body of work is looking at Britain's suppression of black power organizing in the English-speaking Caribbean during the 1960s and 70s. And so the first act was looking at the um, actions and visions of black activists in Bermuda and Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and so it felt important to have that exhibition in Peckham. And then Unattributable Briefs Act Two is at Orleans House Gallery in Twickenham, which, you know, has its own colonial history. Um, and yeah, that act is looking at the operations of the British government in response to activists. And right, so, the, and I went to the first section, I haven't been to the second bit yet, because I just got back to the country. But, um, you know, we we had in that exhibition, um, there was panel discussions, you, you, you obviously all of your work, all of your research, and also you invited you made sure that there was DJs playing like actual good Caribbean music. You had like soca stuff. You had a Black Obsidian sound system, Amazing. family day, mask making workshop, um, really good Trini food. Like I was thinking about food. I, this seems to be what I commonly do. Yeah, like good Trinidad <laughs> and Tobago so food, which I feel like this for me are all integral to actually having like a space where people feel comfortable engaging with these histories. Mm. It's like meeting people where they're at, like coming into a community, having music, having food, having um, talks, you know, with, with the diversity of voices who speak about things in different ways, having, um, you know, mask making workshops, having painting, of course, like a lot of people are visual learners. And, and yeah, I think these are all really, I think your, your practice and this ongoing series of, of, of uh, works that you're making really is kind of antidotal to some of the problems mm. that are presented by the framing of this piece. And when does your exhibition close? Because I'm just wondering, well, I'm hoping that this goes out in time. It's just been extended actually, so it'll Fantastic. be on until the end of May. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I will definitely be coming. Thanks. 
Um, and I hope that this episode will be out in time for people to hear about it. But if they miss it, where can they find you on social media? And where can um, yes, it will be on my website and my um, Instagram, which is both just my name, so Rudy Lowe. Wonderful. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Mm. It's been a really interesting... Honestly, I feel as though there's so much I need to think about and um, explore further just based on what we've discussed today. I want to give you a huge thank you for coming in and yeah, spending this time. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Seeing Ourselves podcast hosted by me, Sharon Walters. I'm a London-based artist whose practice includes hand-assembled collages celebrating black women. You can find my work on Instagram by heading to London underscore artist one or by visiting my website, londonartistone.com.